If you have your Bible this morning, if you want to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going through the book of 1 Timothy together. We find ourselves here in chapter 3 this morning. As you turn there, it's always funny what's going on in the background of services that not everybody's aware of. Pastor Dave said the baptistry was filling this morning. That's not how we normally do it. It was supposed to be full when we got here. It had drained for some reason. And so the water was freezing waters this morning. And uh, it was funny because <clears throat> Spencer's son, Ryle, came up here before service. And I said, you probably shouldn't touch the water. And he's like, well, I just wanted to see what it was like. I'm like, you don't want to know what it was like, what it's like. You just need to plunge in. And he said, well, would you mind if I swam while you preached? He goes, I don't mind cold water. I said, yeah, we'll see. And I don't know if you notice how fast he got out of that baptistry. It looked like he didn't like his dad, but I think it was the water was freezing. Uh, but the baptism still counted with cold water. And we're thankful for that this morning. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And here we start to see Paul start to talk about uh, qualification for pastor, elder, and also deacons, which we'll look at next week is the deacon part. But this week our, our focus will be on the elder pastor role. Uh, John Stott, in his book on 1 Timothy, uh, says that chapter 1 is an apostolic doctrine. We saw that. Chapter 2 is conduct and public worship. We spent some time looking at that. And now in chapter 3, he focuses attention here to qualification for church leaders. Uh, Thoughts on church leadership, I think, can usually go in two directions that are dangerous. Number one is we can raise up church leaders way too high, uh, too high for what they should be, and we start to allow them to rule and reign, and that is not the point of, of church leadership. Uh, but also what we can do, the other danger, is we can lower the authority of church leaders and start treating them as if their teaching is one of many interpretations or maybe even their own opinion and it never really matters that great. And so some come to a church service and they will listen to their pastor preach, but they don't listen to it with any, as if there's any authority behind it at all. They say, well, Pastor Tim thought this way. That might be what here, happens here. But I kind of think something different, and it's not that big of a deal. That actually is kind of a big deal. Uh, and we're going to see that here in this passage this morning. Now, I'm not saying that what I say is the end-all be-all and that I'm perfect by no means uh, is that the case? Uh, but we cannot take the authority of church pastors and leaders that we see in Scripture and just push it aside as if it's not important at all. No, the Bible speaks very specifically about the authority of church leaders, and hopefully uh, this morning will help us to see this from a biblical perspective of what is really going on here. There are two offices that we see given in the Bible. One is the elder, pastor, overseer, bishop. That's all really the same word there in this passage. And also deacon. I want to read verses 1 through 8 for us. Uh, just the beginning of verse 8. Because like I said, we'll look at that more next week. It says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? 
He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And then verse 8 starts the section on deacons. It just says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy, dishonest gain. We'll talk more about that next week. I just wanted you to see the two offices. These are the two offices that we see in Scripture. No more and no less. And like I said, today our focus is on the pastor slash elder qualifications. But real quick, before we dive into this passage, there are some things I think that need to be brought up that the New Testament consistently gives examples of when talking about this role of elder pastor. What we see consistently in the New Testament is elders being appointed to churches in every town. We see this in Acts chapter 14, verse 23. It says, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We also see this in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. It says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. And this, that was in Ephesus where that was being written. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and the beginning of verse 2, Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock. And this would have been Peter talking to people all over Asia Minor. And so there's many other places in Scripture that we could go as well to see where the elders are called upon to lead, to be people of prayer, to teach, to oversee the church. In each instance... It is used in the plural of multiple ones, multiple elders, pastors doing this work within the church. And it seems to be a plurality of elders is the common practice within the New Testament church. Because uh, again, we see it at each place. When Paul would go, he's appointing elders. He would encourage this with Tim Timothy to find men to help lead the church, to fulfill the roles that God has called for the church and the offices within the church. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, which we'll get to later, but in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, it says, let the elders, again plural, who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. But again, we see this plural of this word being used. And there's many advantages to a church having multiple pastors and elders within the body of Christ. One is accountability for them. They are accountable to each other. To, to make sure that they are teaching what needs to be taught, acting how they are supposed to be acting. But also there's a shared load of the work that needs to be done. And you also have the idea of ironing, sharpening iron. But uh, the most important part of all of this is that it's the biblical practice. And it doesn't matter on church size. You see, that's one of the things we see, and this isn't the point of my message, I'll be really quick on this, but it doesn't matter on the church size in this either. Most churches in our denomination are going to have one pastor and about 50 or so members. That's in the Southern Baptist Convention. That's probably that's the most common, uh, what we see. But the problem with that is the Bible speaks of, of multiple pastor elders. Now, they don't all need to be paid, but there's got to be qualified men, according to this passage, that could come alongside as pastor's elders to share the workload together. You think about the churches that Paul was talking to, that Timothy was leading. These aren't booming churches. 
But yet the call is always, we need to find elders, again, plural, to help lead this church well, to teach at this church and to oversee and to care for this church. And so this is, I believe, needs to be the common practice amongst churches that we see biblically. Well, Paul writes in Titus as well of the qualifications of the pastor elder. And so if you want to turn there real quick in Titus chapter 1, verse 5 through 9, we'll compare this a little bit with 1 Timothy. It's just a, a little bit over in your Bible there, just a few pages, you'll get to Titus. But in Titus 1, 5 through 9, we see a very similar list to what we see in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3. Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. I just want to go through this list. We'll go verse by verse there in 1 Timothy, and I'll throw in some of the Titus one as well. Uh, and I think it's pretty cut and dry what we see here. In verse 1, Paul says this task of being an elder is a noble task. He says the work of a pastor is a good work, and it's one worth doing. It's one worth uh, living. And too often it isn't seen this way. And to be honest, there's times when people say, what do you do? I'm a pastor. It almost comes across that they're like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you do that. It's not. It's a good work. It's a, it's a good thing to be a part of. Being a, a pastor or an elder of a church is not weak. It's, it's not just going to make you poor. It's not always this big hassle. It's definitely not a waste of time. Paul says this is a noble task, and it is a good work. One of the great important things for the church and for our society as a whole is for churches to be led well. And it does then have an impact on society. And it is a task worthy of dedicating one's life to. And so I don't know where people are here, but some may be being called to this task in their life. And if that's you this morning, and you look at this qualification and you look at this list, and you feel like, I think God might be calling me into the work of ministry, I would tell you it's a noble task to be a part of. It's a difficult task, can be hard at times, but so can any job, right? So can any vocation, any task. Paul's saying here to Timothy, it is a noble thing to do this work. And one of the reasons for that is it is a calling that God would put on you. John Stott said in his commentary on this, he said, so what we call the selection of candidates for the pastorate entails, according to Paul, three essentials. The call of God, the inner aspiration and conviction of the individuals concerned, and their conscientious screening by the church as to whether they meet the requirements which the apostle now goes on to list. So that's really three things when looking at a pastor. Are you, are you called by God? Do you have the inner aspirations to actually do this task and this work? And then number three, does the church find you qualified according to Scripture? to do this work? Those are the real big three questions that need to be asked of a pastor or elder as you're trying to appoint them for, for the church. And as we get to this list, I wanna say this. I'm glad that we read the Ten Commandments this morning because it put all of us on a level playing field. 
Because if I did not do that, what would be happening this morning would be showing you how unqualified I am for this task of pastor. And you might be sitting there on your high horse thinking you're all good. But we realized this morning, reading the Ten Commandments, remember that we're all sinners. We're all messed up. None of us reach this level that we feel we should reach. We just simply can't do it. And we know that Christ has done it for us. I say that because look at the very first task of, of the pastor. Must be above reproach. This first requirement really sums up the whole list in a very general way. But the question has to be asked, does it mean exactly what it says to be above reproach? Because if that's the case, then no church has a pastor. Correct? I don't know any person who is above reproach. Every single one of you have something in your closet. So do I. We have things that are there. I'm sure you have pictures out there that you're embarrassed of that you hope never come up. There's many of you who are very thankful cell phones didn't exist when you were a kid. I have no doubt of that. So when we look at this first task for the pastor, the first characteristic of being above reproach, is it really talking about perfection here? Because to truly be above reproach, you have to be perfect. How can anyone fulfill this first requirement? Well, I think, one, it does want to point to the importance of leadership within the church and their character, does it not? When it lays something out like that. It shouldn't be just some willy-nilly task of saying, oh, we don't have a pastor, let's just get some guy up there. Let's just get somebody who can read. All right, let's just get somebody who shows some sort of leadership quality. No, it shows how important it really is to have that person and that authority over the church by saying right off the bat, they must be above reproach. Now, I believe the general idea here is not one that is somebody open to attack. That this, this man who you're going to call to be your pastor or one of the elders should have a characteristic where there's not a ton of criticism on them. Their character and their Christian conduct seem to be exactly where it should be. And most generally, people have good things to say when, it, when this man comes up. This allows the church then, really, when you're trying to hire somebody or fill, fill this position, to look at references, to ask around about the pastor. Hey, what do you think of this guy? Because that's, that's one, of the, one of the things here. Is he above reproach? And in all of this, in all of this, in this list here, starting with this one, do we, we see the need, don't we, for the pastor to be someone who we can trust wholly in, to trust them, that they've trusted in Christ, and that they're trusting in the one who actually is above reproach, Jesus Christ himself. That's what we need to see reflected when we see this idea of being above reproach. Is this a man who constantly is pointing to Christ and looking to Christ for all things? Because that then is what makes him above reproach, because he's going to the one who is above reproach. Well, after that, Paul gets right into the nitty-gritty and talks about marriage, the husband of one wife. We see the importance of marriage, really, in a lot of places in the Bible, specifically in Genesis, but also in Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, we see, scripturally, that marriage is to be a one-and-done transaction. It is to last for all of life. The Bible says the two become one flesh. And oftentimes in marriage, it is then said, what God has put together, let not man put asunder. 
saying that this is now one flesh. You can't just rip one flesh apart. It doesn't work that way. We, we see the one and done mentality of marriage here. And what we see in Ephesians chapter 5 is it points to even uh, something greater within marriage, that marriage points us to the gospel. That marriage is a picture of the relationship of Jesus Christ himself with his, with his church, with his bride. And so with this in mind, it becomes easy to understand why Paul would bring this out and why Paul would mention this in this list. But throughout the years, there's been different interpretations of what this might mean. I, list, I listed them here for you to think about. One is some say it excludes all who've never been married. That what Paul's getting at here is you have to be married to be a pastor elder. Some say Paul is excluding just polygamists, that this had been very common during the time when Paul was writing this. And what he's trying to get apart, what, across to the people is just have, just have one wife, not many. Some say it excludes those who've been divorced and remarried. Some say it means those who've been widowed and then remarried. Some, though, say that Paul's speaking of marriage faithfulness specifically, that that's what Paul's getting at. A one-woman man and cares for his wife and loves his wife and is devoted to his wife and to his wife only. I think in general what you can see for sure is that Paul is pointing out that pastors need to be faithful to their wife and to their marriage bond. And if one cannot do this, then the question needs to be asked, can one then lead the church. Now some of these things, some of these options that I gave you, obviously I think we could push away right away. Like the first one, does a pastor have to be married? Well, Paul is disqualified if he had to be married. Paul was not married, right? And so we can't go and say that. But again, I want to speak of it more in the general sense. Is if the man is married, what does his wife think of him? Is he devoted to her and to her only? And if there's questions there, then this task probably isn't for him. Well, Paul then continues on after that with a few words. I want to look at three words together here. Sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. And John Stott says that this is a section on his self-mastery. Can he control Himself And Titus, there's some other words used that would go along with this. Lover of good, maybe, uh, also uses the word disciplined. These words point to one who knows themselves and can control themselves. This means he's level-headed, understands himself, how to act, not just in public, but also in private, and can handle those types of situations always. One who does this then is a person who is respected by others. If you can control yourself, control your tongue, control your actions, then you find respect from others. As I said, Paul adds in Titus, a disciple, someone who's disciplined, a lover of good. And we know that in Scripture, it speaks consistently of how even as Christians, we are to be disciplined within our faith. And this goes for the pastor elder as well especially if he's going to lead a congregation in that, he needs to be one that is disciplined so that he can lead and lead with respect from everybody. Now, I haven't gotten too far in this list, and I would dare say I've disqualified all of us men in this room. You remember last week when we talked about uh, what the men should do in worship. Remember what it said? The men should pray everywhere with holy hands. 
And then Paul went on to talk about a couple sins that men seem to struggle with. And what was it? Do you remember? Anger and quarreling, which would go directly against what we're talking about here, of the self-mastery. Being sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. When we're looking for pastors, elders within this church, we need to make sure that they have control of themselves. They're not just going to go off the cuff, scream at everybody all the time, control their emotions, and be disciplined. Well, Paul then goes on. Again, I don't want to say too long with all these because there's a lot of them. He says, hospitable. The pastor must be one who's willing to care for those around him by taking care of those who need care and who need help. This can mean all kinds of things. Maybe you give people a place to stay. That's probably what Paul was talking about because in this culture, it was not kind to let people stay in inns and in different places. You, you brought them into your home. <clears throat> and so Paul's talking about that, but today we live kind of in a different time. It can mean a place to stay. It also can mean just certain acts of hospitality, making meals for people, caring for them, meeting needs when needs need to be met, whatever that might be. But the pastor needs to be one who enjoys doing this and doesn't feel burdened every time something comes along and they have to be hospitable. But they seem to actually welcome it and like doing it. I would say on a side note, one of the things that was very heartbreaking for me as pastor, and I know this is not talking about pastors, but when we brought up the idea of home groups in our church, I saw a little bit of hospitality that we lack. We were like, I mean, people like, I don't want people in my house. I didn't know how to respond to that. Like, what? I don't want anybody to come to my house. Why not? I don't like people in my house. I mean, my response wanted to be, you don't like being a Christian. That's what Christians do. We're hospitable. We care for people. We go out there for people. We actually will get hurt at times because we're being hospitable to people. Yeah, but pastor, what if my insurance doesn't cover something? I'm like, what? Like what? Well, what if they get hurt and I'm in trouble? And now I, I, I'm like, oh my gosh. I mean, we really went deep into this. It was a little heartbreaking to see that. And I, I hope that that changes within us. We are a family. And yes, in our family, we have people that we rather would not come to our homes. We all have those family members. Don't get me wrong. But they still come. When we have Christmas together, they're still invited. We still go to their house. And that should be very characteristic of the church family. And the pastor should be the one to lead in that. Next, and this is the biggest thing of the pastor elder, is able to teach. Uh, Titus talks a lot about this in Titus uh, chapter 1 verse 9, which we already read. He said he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may, he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is uh, one of the biggest differences we see here between pastor, elder, and deacon. Deacons do not have this on their list. But a pastor is called to be able to teach, to hold firm to the word, not coming up with new things on their own, but teaching what God's word says and what it teaches us. They must be trained and brought up in the word. Now, this could mean all kinds of things. It could mean going off to Bible school. It could mean going off to seminary. But it also can mean being trained in your church, in a good church. You don't have to have a Bible school. You don't have to have seminaries. 
But you do have to have churches, local churches. Scripture speaks of that. And so it is the task of the church to help train up these men, to help them to be able to teach the word of God. And that's what we see, right? Not just hold firm to the word, but then to teach the word. And so these men need to be able to then take what they have learned and what they know in scripture and prayerfully have, been, have, have grasped in their hearts and then to teach it out to others so that it can be understood. We see the importance of this in Acts chapter 6. When word would come to the apostles, if you remember, that there was a problem that people were not getting ministered to. It was starting to become a little unfair. And the apostles said something very telling at that time. It almost seems uncompassionate, but it actually wasn't. It was how the church is structured. They said, we need to appoint some men to go and do this work. It's not good for us who are called to teach and to lead to stop teaching and leading. We have to keep doing this work, but we will get men who then will go and meet these needs and do this ministry. And it shows the importance of teaching the word and that task being done well. They were saying, we can't leave this work to go do that work. This work here is a must of teaching and of prayer. And to be honest with you, I feel this way every week, and I've shared that with you before, and I think it's good to tell you this because I want you to know this in my heart. It's so hard for me to do anything in the week until this stinking piece of paper has words on it. It's just such a weight that involves heartburn, usually upset stomach, and worry. Because I want to say the right thing. I want to teach the right thing. And I know that this is the task that I have been given, is to proclaim the word of God to you this morning, and to do that every week, and to do it faithfully, and to do it well. With all the other tasks that you guys might have for me on my job description, that is the single most important one in there. Teach the word of God to you this morning. And then to do it again the next morning. And to make sure that we have a teaching ministry within the church that is being done by abled people to teach you what is right and well. Again, there's a lot of other good tasks that can be done. Feeding people, meeting needs, meeting physical needs of which I enjoy doing. But none of that means anything if I'm not teaching the word of God as first and foremost. And so that is one of the main roles of the pastor, I would say the main role. Well, Paul goes on in verse three, not a drunkard. This one's pretty cut and dry. I don't think I need to spend much time on that. Shouldn't be stumbling around drinking all the time. Not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome and not a lover of money. Uh, We see Paul get to the temperament of the pastor here, someone who's not arrogant, someone who is not quick-tempered. And this is so important in being a pastor because, I don't know if you know this, but pastors deal with people all the time. But most of the time when pastors deal with people are in situations where people feel hopeless. People feel full of despair. That's when the call comes in. I don't know what to do. My kid is lost. He's not a Christian and going wayward. Pastor, what needs to be done? Right? Or my mother just died. What, what do I do? I'm having a difficulty with my spouse. They're wanting to leave me. I know that as Christians, we're not supposed to get divorced. What do I, what do, I do? Just hopeless. And the last thing you need in a situation like that is somebody who doesn't, not, doesn't know how to control their temper and to control themselves. Because at times, what you want to do, (laughs) 
This sounds horrible, but it's just the honest truth, being very open with you. You want to look at those people and be like, you want to know why your kid's going astray? You're astray. You're messed up, and your family's messed up, and you want to just go off on them. I've been preaching to you for 25 years. I don't think you've ever listened. I don't think you've ever paid any attention. I don't even know if you can spell Jesus yet. And you're running about your kid, right? No. Pastor has to be somebody who knows how to hold their temper, to have compassion for people, and to care for them, and to be able to think clearly in those situations, and to look at the Bible and to be able to encourage people of the hope that is found in Christ and in Christ alone, even in hopeless situations. To be able to point them to the love of God. But those who struggle with anger, those who struggle with violence, those who struggle with quarreling, the fact of the matter is those people cannot think clearly in these types of situations. They just can't do it. Their emotions start to control them and then their emotions control their response to everything else. And it's just somebody who cannot be trusted to lead. To lead when things get difficult. To things to lead when things are very trying. Again, this isn't, a, this isn't an appeal for me in trying to butter myself up with this list. I can tell you already, I've failed in all of them. But one of the most difficult times to pastor and to make sure you weren't quick to anger and quarrelsome was COVID. You talk about a time to quarrel. Oh my gosh, everybody wanted to quarrel. They wanted to yell at every second about anything. A mask, a test, how far we have to sit apart, how often are we going to sing, whatever it might be. We wanted to turn everything into an argument. And sadly, what I saw amongst my colleagues and people in my profession were many of them who quickly pushed this qualification aside and said, I'm ready to join in and fight. And it came across very poorly for the church. It didn't come across as people who loved and who cared, who wanted to fight for truth. It came across as something very different. And I only bring that up because I think that is a very clear sign of some men probably who shouldn't be in the position they were in because they wanted to fight. And that's not what Paul is talking about here. The pastor isn't somebody who's arrogant. Think about that. It makes absolutely no sense for a pastor to be arrogant at any point in their life. The Bible is very clear. It is Christ who leads the church, not a pastor. So even if your church is booming, you can't stand there and say, look how good I am. It has nothing to do with you. It's Christ who leads the church. It is Christ also who saves people and brings true hope, true joy, and true peace. And so if I preach a message and somebody comes up to me after and says, I want you to know that I gave my life to Christ today. He saved my soul. I can't go, well, I'm going to preach this again next week because it works. It had nothing to do with me. God saved them. God opened their eyes to the truth. Jesus died for them. Jesus' blood was spilled. Jesus raised from the dead. Tim didn't do any of that. I just simply said, hey, look at this guy, Jesus. I think he's for you. And he told you, I am for you. And you were saved. And so to think of a pastor that's arrogant just shouldn't add up. It just shouldn't make sense for that to be in the pulpit or leading a church because there's nothing within ourselves 
that can help the church. Paul goes on after that, and he talks about money. Uh, He says, uh, not a lover of money there at the end of verse 3. Money does become a stumbling block, doesn't for so many. And this cannot be the case for a pastor. A pastor must be somebody who's charitable, somebody who's giving. One who knows exactly why God has given him everything he has, especially when it comes to materials and to money. Money is necessary, yes, money is needed. But a pastor needs to know the purpose of money biblically. Be willing to give it all if necessary. Be willing to manage it and use it well. Sadly, we see, don't we, some use this against pastors. Some pastors use this for their own gain, especially with the prosperity gospel today. Money is used to pervert the gospel. But I've also sadly heard in a church, and I'm not going to say it's happened here because I don't think it has happened here, but I've heard it in other churches when I've sat in on these meetings, is people would use this against their pastors where they would say, if he's truly a man of God, he won't care about money. And sadly, you've got to look at those people and say, yeah, but he's also supposed to manage his house well. And you're not letting him by giving him that much money. He can't do it, therefore he can't pastor. He can't pastor you. And we can't just use this against them. Again, I'm thankful for how our church handles that. I think we do a pretty good job with that. But then it goes on. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? I think to put this simply, he must be a good husband, he needs to be a good dad, and he needs to be pointing his family to Jesus. I think some fair questions to ask of the leaders in the church is this. Does his family love him? Like I'd love to just be you know, a little fly on the wall and see him come home. How does his family respond when he comes home? Oh gosh, dad's here. Now it starts. Is it that response? Or is it, hey, dad's home. Hey dad, how's your day? A good response. Do they respect him? Or do they fear him? Uh, this is something that I, I see in coaching as well. I'm stuck in that mindset right now of coaching some things. But there are coaches who want to be feared, and then there's coaches who want to be respected. I never respected a coach who wanted to be feared because I knew what he was doing. You scream at me all day long. It doesn't matter. I can't grow six inches. You can keep yelling at me to jump up there and get that. I can't do that. Keep screaming at me. It's not helping me. But somebody who respects me and who I then respect can go a lot farther in helping me when it comes to some sport or anything really in life. It's the same way in the home. Is he respected by his family or do they just fear him? Does he manage with an iron fist and that's how things get done or does he manage out of love, care, compassion, and concern, always willing to lay his life down for his family and for his wife? Do they enjoy him or do they dread him? Does his family seem to be in disarray often? Everything is just chaotic and all out of sorts. Or does it seem like there is some structure there? Because that's kind of telling then of how he will lead the church. You really can't tell a lot about a man's home life. And if he cannot lead at home, he simply cannot lead in the church. That is a must, according to what Paul is telling us here in God's word. Now, it doesn't mean this family's perfect by any means. But I think those questions are helpful in trying to answer this part of his home life. Well, Paul goes on, trying to go quick here. He says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. 
We see a spiritual maturity. In Titus, it also says he must be upright. And he also adds this word, holy. Paul warns here, doesn't he, against letting a new convert have this position. And we can understand, I think, why that would be. The pastor needs to be someone who's proven himself spiritually, who the congregation sees and knows and understands. That person loves the Lord, is serving the Lord, has been trained and got the word of God, can teach the word of God. That's what the church needs to see before they bring somebody on and ordain them to be a pastor, elder. Not just somebody who can talk about it, but somebody who walks it, somebody, somebody who, who lives it. And this is another area, though, where discipline would come in. I know we talked about it earlier, but where they're in the word of God, where they're praying, where they're willing to be taught themselves. All these different disciplines that we can see in Scripture, are they, are they doing that? Do they show a spiritual maturity in all kinds of situations? And then Paul finishes with something interesting, the last thing. Because you might ask, why does this matter? He says, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. Now, again, this is interesting because pretty soon Paul's going to be killed by outsiders. Which would make me think, you didn't have a very good reputation, did you? Against outsiders. And so we got to be careful to, to interpret this well. Should, should the pastors push belief and faith aside so that outsiders see them as well? No, I don't think that's what's being said here. But one thing that we do need to keep in mind is that one of the jobs of the church, that's all of us here this morning, not just me, but of the church is to share the gospel with people out there, of which the pastors are to lead the charge in that. It's very difficult to share the gospel with people when those people think you're a liar, a crook, a cheat, someone who can't be trusted, someone who can't be respected. There is a general sense, especially in the society that we live in today, that the pastor can be a respected person on the outside of the church as well. Someone who people might trust, who's seen their handlings with other things, and not just in the church, but outside of the church, and that they are seen as well-equipped and of good reputation. And so this is something I think that is important here and that Paul is talking about, that we should have a good reputation even outside of the church. Now, when we look at this list, as I had mentioned before, it's very easy to see that no one is qualified for this position. I'm definitely not qualified for this position. The other pastors, I would guess, would nod their head and say they would agree with me not being qualified, but also with them not being qualified. So what do we, how do we take this? Well, I want to take us back to what I had mentioned already. And I want to remind you of this. Christ is the head of this church. And when we look at this list, there is one who has fulfilled this list perfectly. And it's the one who leads this church, Jesus. It's the one who truly gave himself for the church, Jesus. You see, we can go down our list and our history of 85 years of Menor Missionary Baptist Church, and we can see a list of pastors who've done a good job. And I'm sure there's men that have been pastors here that you've respected greatly. But the fact is, every single one of those men are disqualified according to this passage. 
And what has kept this church afloat for so long, what has allowed this church to see any sort of success in seeing people come to know the Lord or to have the baptistry being filled with water and people being dunked under water in baptism is the fact that Jesus continues to do the work here. It's God who continues to open the eyes of the blind within our community. It's God who continues to care for his creation and to allow us to even be a part of that here. Yeah, no man can fulfill this list whatsoever. But thankfully, we look to the one who has fulfilled it. And he fulfills it perfectly. And now why in God's great scheme of everything did he choose to use us sinners as a part of his kingdom? I wish I could answer that, but I'm thankful that he has. Aren't you? I'm thankful that he allows me to be a part of his team and to serve and to work even in the midst of sin, even in the midst of understanding that, God, you've called me to be a pastor, yet it seems like every step of the way I can think of reasons why I should put my resignation in today. Not why I should go apply for a job, but why I should put my resignation in. Just like as I read those Ten Commandments this morning, if we really take that list seriously, All of you should have been thinking, how fast can I get down there and pray? (laughs) Because I need to seek forgiveness. I can't live up to this. But that's why we read Romans 8. Christ has fulfilled it. And I pray every day that in my weakness as a pastor, in Spencer's weakness, in Scott's weakness, and in Dave's weakness as pastors, what does shine through is Christ. That's what I hope that you see. In our failings and in our shortcomings, of which we have, of which some of you like to tell us about, we love hearing it. But that what you see in it, hopefully, is Christ. We're not perfect. We don't don't claim to be. I never will be. But Jesus is perfect. And in his perfection, he came and died for you in your imperfection so that you could have life abundantly and eternally, that you could one day be glorified because of the work that he has done. And so as we look at this passage on church authority, and like I said, next week we'll be on the deacons. I'm going to have all of them stand up here the whole time I preach and point out all their flaws and everything they do wrong. I'm looking forward to that. But as we go forward, I'm glad we get to a passage like this that is focused on me and the other pastors because so often... I think maybe you feel like it's me speaking to you guys about all that you need to do better. You have the privilege today to look at me and say, you've got a lot to do better too. And the answer is I do. I do. But hopefully we do this with our eyes on Christ all together. 